and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let me invite you to turn in the scriptures to Psalm chapter 61. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardcover black one underneath a chair in the row in front of you. So we'll be in Psalm 61 this morning. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that somehow we had the technology to collect all of the prayers that you have prayed so far this year. And then to collect all those prayers and transcribe them and print them out in manuscripts for all of us to read. That might be frightening to some of you, maybe for how short that stack of paper might be. But imagine what would we find as we read through those prayers? Would we find sweet prayers just filled with utter dependence on the Lord? Would we find prayers requesting God to fulfill all of your needs? Would we provide, or would we read prayers of thanksgiving for how the Lord has provided you in the past? Would we read prayers of heartfelt confession of sin? Well, as we come to Psalm 61 this morning, we get a glimpse of King David's prayer life. This is, in a sense, a, a written-down manuscript of a real prayer that he prayed during a moment of crisis. We find him in a moment where he's struggling, he's isolated, he feels as though his heart is fainting. And many of us, when we find ourselves in similar situations, we go to the Lord in prayer, and then we tend to complain. We tend to, to focus on ourselves, kind of a woe is me sort of prayer, and make it all about us. But David, as we'll see in the text, he turns his focus upward. He focuses his prayer on God's nature and confesses his utter dependence on the Lord. And as we read David's prayer this morning, my prayer is that your own prayer life would be encouraged. That you would look to God's character, his attributes, and his never-failing promises in your own prayers. And that you would learn all the more what it means to depend on the Lord in prayer throughout every situation in life. So let me now read for us from Psalm 61. Hear now the word of the Lord. Did you take heed how you listen? To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is the word of the Lord. And it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And as we walk through the text this morning, we'll be following four headings. First, the rock that is higher, the God who protects, the king who reigns forever, and then finally, the believer's vow of praise. 
Let's look first at the rock that is higher. David begins this prayer in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. As we study the Psalms, it's often helpful to try to figure out the context of what was happening whenever the psalmist wrote these words. And in this case, in Psalm 61, we we don't know exactly what is happening, but we have a few clues from within the psalm. You look at verses 6 and 7, you see that David's praying for the years of the king to increase. And this suggests that, that David was writing this psalm once he had already become the king of Israel. Another hint comes in verse 2, where David says he's crying out to God from the end of the earth. There's a couple possibilities of what he means by that phrase, from the end of the earth. This could mean that David was, you know, physically some distance far away from Jerusalem at the time that he was writing this psalm. Perhaps it was, you know, as he was fleeing from his son Absalom's rebellion. That story is recorded in 2 Samuel 15, where where David is forced to live outside the city walls, hiding in the caves from his son. It could also be possible that that David penned this hymn while he was leading a military campaign, and he and his army were physically far away from Jerusalem on the battlefront, and he longed to get back to the temple where God's presence dwelled most closely. Another possibility is that David is speaking metaphorically here. That he feels as though, his sense is, he feels as though he's distant from God. In any case, I I think it's actually helpful for us that we don't know which of these possibilities is true. We don't know where David was and what was happening when he wrote this psalm. But that's a great help for us. Because it helps us today as we read this psalm to see ourselves in it. You know, most every one of us has had times like how David is feeling now. Times where we've cried out to the Lord. We've had seasons where our prayers are filled with angst and worry and sadness, just like David's are here. Perhaps this is even the case today as you're here this morning. That the Lord in his providence has has brought you to a place where you're feeling as though your heart is faint. And that you're distant from God. And if that's so, then I want you to be encouraged by this psalm. In fact, I'd encourage you to to let this psalm be a guide that you use in your own prayers. Let this be a model for how you structure your prayers to God. David writes in verse 2, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What a great prayer that is. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now, around the city of Jerusalem, there are numerous hills and rocks and caves. And and David really knew all of their nooks and crannies. As a younger man, when he was chased by King Saul, he spent a large amount of time traveling between these caves. And, you know, the same thing happened when he was fleeing from Absalom's rebellion. It's very well possible he was hiding in some caves around rocks as he wrote these words. And so for David, the image of a rock is an image of protection and security. This is why he refers to the Lord as his rock more than 20 times throughout the Psalms. But uniquely here in Psalm 61, David modifies this description of God as the rock. He modifies it in two key ways. First, he he remembers that this rock is higher than I. 
Meaning that God's ways and God's knowledge are infinitely greater than anything David could ever hope to attain. This is a real mark of humility here. With this phrase, David is confessing that his perspective, his knowledge are incomplete. And that he desperately needs the Lord's help for his survival. You can hear echoes here of what David's son Solomon would write in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So by confessing that, that the rock is higher than him, David is, in a sense, reminding himself to trust in the Lord, to lean on the Lord's understanding. This psalm speaks, I think, directly against the self-sufficient nature that many of us seem to be so proud of. In our culture, it's perceived as a good thing to be an independent person. We're trained to think that the strongest people in our culture are those who never ask for help from anyone else. And yet, David's prayer here teaches us the exact opposite. Remember that David, as he's writing this psalm, he was literally at the top of society. He's the king of Israel, held great power and authority. And yet, David was wise enough to know that the Lord was even higher than him. He was wise enough to know that he needed help from the rock. And I wonder if many of us are, are far too proud and have a strong desire to appear independent. So we fail to ask the Lord for his help when we should. Maybe we're guilty of, you know, bringing the big issues to God, the big prayer requests, but assume that God wants us to take care of the little things on our own strength. I think it would be of great profit for us to commit ourselves to pray like this. Lord, you are the rock that is higher than I. Pastor Richard Phillips writes, even as believers, we should appeal to God frequently for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, apart from whom we are too weak to climb up to the gospel truths that cast away our fears. Let's, our, let's commit ourselves to appeal to that rock more often. Now, the second thing that's unique about David's use of the word rock is the manner by which he approaches the rock. It says in the, verse, in the middle of verse 2, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Here he's confessing that he cannot come to the rock by his own strength. He needs the Lord to lead him or to carry him to the rock. And I think this fits well with the idea frequently used in scripture where we see that the word rock is connected to Jesus Christ himself. You can think of the next psalm. In Psalm 62, David writes, He alone is my rock and my salvation. Connecting rock with the salvation offered in Christ. Or think of John chapter 7, where Jesus is said to be the rock from whom our salvation flows. And so by praying for the Lord to lead me to the rock, David is helping us to see a key aspect of how salvation works. That it is the Holy Spirit who leads us to the rock of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who, who draws us to, who gives us the faith and enables us to trust in Christ. Now, when Charles Spurgeon wrote his commentary on this passage, he paints the picture of mariners who are traveling through some dangerous patch of sea, trying to find their way to safety on shore. 
And during their journey, a, a huge storm arises and a gust of wind slams their boat against a large rock. And as the boat takes on water and starts sinking, the men know that they're at danger of drowning. And so they jump out of the boat and cling on to this rock for dear life. And at one level, that, that is such a great picture of what it looks like to cling to the rock for help in times of trouble. But there's something important we need to remember that the reality of our salvation in Christ as our rock is that without Christ, we are not merely at risk of drowning. Rather, apart from Christ, we are dead at the bottom of the ocean of our sin. We don't simply need a helping hand up to the rock. We need the Holy Spirit to awaken our dead hearts and to give us life. This is the same image that the Apostle Paul puts forth in Ephesians chapter 2. And I know it's been a little bit since we've been in the book of Ephesians, but let me remind you what Paul writes there. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Meaning that before Christ rescued us, we were dead. Not simply drowning in need of a life vest, but dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul continues in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's only by the saving grace of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we are raised from spiritual death to new life. Dear believer, don't you know that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to work in your dead hearts and who raise you to life? He's the one who, who drew you up from the depths and allowed you to cling to the rock of your salvation. And so David, in this prayer in Psalm 61, he's asking to be led to the rock of Christ for his salvation. Now there's a key truth for those who are not yet in Christ. If you've not yet confessed that Jesus Christ is your Lord, if you've not yet believed in your heart that God died on the cross and rose from the grave, then I urge you to do exactly what David does in this psalm. Ask for the Holy Spirit to awaken your cold and dead hearts and make you alive together with Christ. Cry out to the Lord and ask him to lead you to the rock of your salvation. Now after crying out to the Lord to be his rock, David now reminds himself of the protection and safekeeping that God offers to all of his children. To all who are in Christ by faith. God offers this protection. This is our second heading, the God who protects. When you look at verses 3 and 4, there are four images of what God is to his trusting people. We'll see that God is our refuge, that he is our strong tower, that he is our protecting tent, that he gives shelter like a mother bird does to her young. The first image comes in verse 3. For you have been my refuge. Now that word refuge again calls to mind all the times that David was fleeing from the city of Jerusalem and hiding amongst the caves and rocks around the city. 
He's remembering back to God's faithfulness in the past. Right? He said, Lord, you have been my refuge. You have protected me before, so please do so now. I think there's a point of application we need to notice here. That we would do well to regularly look back on God's faithfulness in our lives. As believers, I think we need to reflect more on how God has been faithful to us throughout our lives. How he's provided for every need. How he's strengthened us. How he's been our refuge in times of need. At the same time, I think it's also abundantly helpful to consider and remember how the Lord has been faithful to other people. Even just looking at this psalm in 61, we, we, we can be encouraged by the Lord's faithfulness to David. Perhaps you've experienced this as well, that as you talk with other believers and you hear stories of how God has been faithful for them, you find that your own heart is encouraged. I know this has happened for me. When I share a prayer request with a brother in Christ and I say, here's what I'm going through, many times they'll say, you know, 10 years ago I was in that same boat. I experienced that same thing and the Lord brought me through and here's the promises from God's word that have brought me through this. I think we need to be known by each other in community. And you need to be more willing to share prayer requests to other believers, not just so they can pray for you, but also so that they can encourage you and build you up in love. Let yourself just be surprised by the way that God encourages you through his faithfulness to other people. So the second picture we get here is, is that God is David's strong tower against the enemy. In this image, David is not outside the city walls, hiding amongst the caves, but rather he's inside the city, taking protection in a strong tower of defense. You know, while the caves were a place to hide, the tower in a city was a position from which to fight. Like Stephen Lawson put it well when he says this, the idea here is not of a person fleeing from place to place, but of a person defending himself in his walled city when attacked by foes. This is what the Lord was to David, his defender from all harm. So the Lord is David's refuge. He's his strong tower. And now we get the third image in verse four. Let me dwell in your tent forever. David's desire changes here. In these first two images, he was praying for protection, for refuge but here he's desiring relationship. He's desiring to move closer to God. The word tent here is the same as the Hebrew word that's often translated as tabernacle. The tabernacle being the center place of worship in Old Testament Israel. The place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence dwelled most fully amongst his people. And David knows that there's no safer place for him to be than in the presence of God. And so he's longing to be in the temple. We should hear echoes here of what David had written earlier in his life in Psalm 27. He says, One thing I have asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This ought to be our prayer as well. We ought to ask the Lord to, to draw us near to him. But notice how David puts this request in Psalm 61. Let me dwell in your tent forever. He says he wants to be in the tent forever. This request is not just to be back in the tabernacle of Jerusalem, 
but rather to be in the heavenly tabernacle for all of eternity. I want you to hear in this request, let me dwell in your tent forever. This is David longing for heaven. He's longing for close relationship and communion with his God that we'll be a part of in the new heavens and the new earth. And now up to this point, each of these images has grown increasingly close, increasingly intimate. You had David out in the caves seeking God as his refuge. Then you had him in the strong tower inside the city walls and then in the tent or the tabernacle closer to God's presence. And now at the end of verse 4, we come to the most intimate, close image of God's salvation and security that he provides for us as believers. David prays, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. The picture we get is of a mother bird stretching out her wings, welcoming her young chicks in and comforting them and protecting them. It's not too hard to picture a young child who's frightened or startled by something and runs to their mother, asking for their mother to pick them up in their arms and keep them safe. Friends, this is what the Lord does for his children. Especially when we turn to God in prayer, he provides for us deep and abiding comfort. Comfort that's only found in him. This is similar to what Philippians 4 says, where we're, you know, Paul encourages us in our prayers to find peace with God. Paul wrote this, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious about anything, he says, but rather bring your requests to God. And when you do, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, that peace, that security, that comfort that we need is available to us through prayer. Let's move on to our third heading, the king who reigns forever. David continues his prayer in verse 5. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. David refers here to some vows or some prayers that he's made in the past. And he's reminding himself that, the, that God has heard those prayers. And God has answered those prayers. And this, again, is just such a great encouragement for us. That God hears our prayers. We don't have to wonder whether or not God listens to his children. He does. Consider what David writes in Psalm 66. But truly the Lord has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Or consider what, Je what Jesus says in Matthew 6. That our Father knows what we need before we ever ask him for it. Our Lord truly does hear our prayers. And so in verse 5, David is reminding himself that God is faithful. He has answered his prayers and he will again answer them. And then he says, you've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. In a sense, David is identifying himself with all the generations of God's people who've gone before him. He's remembering all these great patriarchs of faith and saying, I'm in the same line, I have the same heritage as they do. He's saying, God, just as you were faithful to, to Noah and protecting him from the flood, protect me now. 
Or just as you were faithful to make of Abraham a great nation, I trust that by faith I'm a part of that nation. Or just as you've been faithful to provide the law of Moses, I trust that your Holy Spirit will help me to be obedient to it. David is just remembering again and again that God's faithfulness endures for all generations. All generations who've gone before him and all who would follow after. Now remember for a second the context in which David is writing this psalm. We don't know exactly what's happening, but something has shook him to the core. He's feeling great distress. He's feeling as though his safety as the king of Israel is at stake. And this is what led him to pray, verses 6 through 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Now, even today in in countries that have monarchies, we see reference to this verse when people shout, you know, long live the king. And at first glance, this may seem like a rather selfish prayer for David to pray. How could David expect his own reign to last for multiple generations? After all, he's merely a man. But I want you to notice the grammar of the psalm for a second. The first five verses, as well as at the end in verse 8, David is speaking in the first person, saying, I and me. But here in the middle of the psalm, David switches to speaking in the third person. He says, May his years endure. May he be enthroned forever. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. David in these verses is is not merely asking for his own life to last for years and years. Instead, he's asking God to fulfill specific promises that God has made. Okay, which specific promises? Well, we have an episode in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God made specific promises to David. Theologians call that chapter of scripture the the Davidic covenant. This idea of a covenant being an unfailing promise of God to his people. And parts of this promise of the Davidic covenant are fulfilled in David and in his immediate offspring after him. But parts of this promise are only fulfilled in someone who would come much later in the lineage of David. So let me read for us just a little bit of 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think it's key to understand that passage in order to understand Psalm 61. So this promise from God to David in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7 says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So this is referring to the the peace and protection that God himself provided to David that David would have a long reign as the king of Israel. And he ended up having a reign that lasted for 40 years. So God fulfilled his promise there. But then he makes this promise in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, from, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, in some ways, this is fulfilled near term in David's son, Solomon. Immediately after David's death, Solomon takes over as king, and he would be the one to build a house of prayer, to build the temple in Jerusalem. But then look in verse 13. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. 
with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's, there's a level at which this promise is fulfilled in Solomon and in the earthly kings who would follow after him in the line of David. Think about when those kings committed sins against God, God was faithful to discipline them. Right? God would allow some other country to come and invade Israel. But there's another level in which we have to see the bigger picture. That these earthly kings are pointing to the one true king, Jesus Christ himself. All of these promises from 2 Samuel 7 are ultimately fulfilled in Christ alone. That he's the one whose throne is established forever. He's the one who is currently, at this very moment, reigning at the right hand of God. He is ruling and defending and protecting us, his people. Okay, so the, what, what then are we to make of verse 14 about this offspring committing iniquity? We know that Jesus Christ himself never sinned. He never committed iniquity. And yet he still received the rod of men. Consider Isaiah 53. But he, speaking of Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What we see here is that you and I and all the kings who came after David are the ones who've committed iniquity. We're the ones who deserve the discipline and wrath of God because of our sin. But Christ stood in our place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and it's only by his wounds that we are healed. The forever king of the universe is the one who came down to die in the place of his people on Calvary's cross. Once again, look at verse 15, that, that God promises that his steadfast love and faithfulness would never depart from this forever king. This king who would, who would reign for all of eternity. Listen to how the gospel writer introduces Christ in Luke chapter 1. That Christ will be the great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see now how Jesus Christ alone is the forever king who fulfilled all of these promises that the Lord made to David. And so David's prayer in Psalm 61 is really just asking for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Look back at Psalm 61, verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. David's prayer here in Psalm 61 would one day be answered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's his reign who would endure for all generations. It's he alone who is currently reigning as the king of everything. I want to remind you what it means that Christ is 
our king. What it means that he's fulfilling that office of a king enthroned before God in heaven. The Westminster Shorter Catechism offers this, this helpful summary of all that scripture teaches on this topic. It asks in question 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. What a great comfort that is for us to rest in. That Jesus Christ is our king. That he presently rules and reigns and defends and protects his people. That he has restrained and one day will completely conquer all of his and our enemies. What great comfort is to be found in that truth. So with all this in mind, David ends our psalm with a brief, though important, vow to sing praises to God for the rest of his days. This is our fourth heading, the believer's vow of praise. David writes this in verse 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. David's commitment to God is twofold. First, that he would ever sing praises to God. And second, to perform those vows day after day. His desire is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever by singing praises to him and by fulfilling the vows that he's made. Or to put it another way, he, he desires to, to be obedient to all that the Lord has called him to do. Really, when you look at verse 8, this is a, a great, succinct summary of the Christian life. We are to praise God with our whole self, and we are to obey all that God commands. Now, if you have young children in our church over the last several months, they've been working in Sunday school on memorizing the children's catechism. That's written for kids. It's, it's simple, and yet, the children's catechism sometimes is a way of taking deep theological truths and, and, and putting them forth in brilliant and accessible ways. Listen to question four from that catechism. How can you glorify God? Now, children already know the answer to this. I can glorify God by loving him and doing what he commands. The Christian life lived to the glory of God is one in which we love God and we aim to do all that he commands. We love him and worship him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we aim by that strength to be obedient to his commands. This is the aim of the Christian life. I want you to consider again the entirety of Psalm 61. Consider the, the structure of David's prayer and how this might be of benefit to your own prayer life. At the beginning, David is crying out to God. He's feeling as though you know, he's at the ends of the earth and his heart was faint. And oftentimes when you and I are in a similar situation, our inclination is to turn to God in prayer as David did. But then, at least for many of us, our inclination might be to focus on how we feel in that moment. Or to spend an inordinate amount of time complaining to God about the problem. Now, those aren't inherently bad things to do. You should let God know how you're feeling. You should be specific in your requests to the Lord. But do you see how David's prayer is structured? Rather than focusing on the problem or on how he feels about the problem, David focuses his attention upward. 
He looks for help from the rock that is higher than he. And then he spends much of the prayer reflecting on God's attributes, on God's character, on God's promises, on God's faithfulness to previous generations. He recalls how God has been his refuge and strong tower against the enemy, and then he asks the Lord to do it again. And then he remembers the specific promises of God's word to provide for him a Messiah king who would reign on the throne forever. And by the time you get to the end of this prayer, David's confidence is renewed. His resolve is strengthened to continue praising God and serving him for the remainder of his days. This ought to be our prayer as well. So even when you don't particularly feel like praying, when you're at the end of your rope and lonely and feeling abandoned, even still, go to the Lord in prayer. But make sure when you do it, in your prayers, take the time to praise God for who he is. Praise him for being the rock that is higher. In your prayers, praise him for the salvation that he's given you by his grace. Praise him for the, the refuge that he's offered to you and the protection that he's provided for you. Praise him for his lordship and kingship over your whole life. Friends, when we pray like this, when we run to the rock like this, we'll find that our strength is renewed. That God will use those prayers as a means by which to strengthen us in the face of trials. That he will carry us through when we come to him as our rock that is higher than us. Let me close with this illustration. If you were to travel to North Somerset, England, and make your way to a nearby gorge outside the city, you would find a large cleft in the side of a rock face. It's a tall, mountainous thing there with a large cleft that's about four feet wide and four feet deep cut into the rock. And on the edge of that cleft, there's a plaque that tells the story that came from 1762. So we're not entirely sure if this story actually happened, but what the plaque claims is that a young man was walking by this mountain on a particularly stormy night, and the rain started falling, the thunder started cracking, lightning started going off, and this man sought shelter from the storm inside the cleft of the rock. And it was there as the rain pounded outside in the protection of the rock cleft, that Augustus Toplady wrote the words to his most famous hymn. He wrote this, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood which from thy ribbon side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Friends, as you go on throughout this week, as you face whatever trials may come your way, make it your aim to hide yourself in the rock of ages who's higher than you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, would you hear now our cry? Oh God, please listen to our prayer. Though many of us may feel as though our hearts are faint, we ask that you would lead us to the rock that is higher than I. You've been so faithful to us in the past. Would you please be now our refuge? Please be our strong tower. Please protect us and let us find comfort under the shelter of your wings. 
we remember and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is our King. May He be enthroned forever. May His steadfast love and faithfulness watch over us. By Your Holy Spirit's help, would You then cause us to sing praises to Your name forevermore. Amen.